Lord of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Well, that's the question we want to talk about today. Can God rescue Daniel? And we're going to look at Daniel chapter 6, probably the story that's most familiar to most people about the life of Daniel. And we're going to unpack that a little bit and talk about how that applies to our times right now. And our times are challenging as were Daniel's times. So stay with us. We're going to ask that question. We're going to answer that question. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Well, there are lions around us, and he can rescue us today, and he can walk through us through the fire and in the den and all the rest of the places. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're really glad to have you join us here on Faith Is, where we remind ourselves that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And the longer I think about it, the more convinced I am that we have to focus on that idea that God is trustworthy and we can trust him through all kinds of times, the good times in life, the challenging times in life, because God really is trustworthy, and faith really is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, so much that we actually act upon that belief. We live that out in our lives. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about two stories from the life of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, and then Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 1 was when they were taken into exile and how they responded, Daniel and particularly his three friends in the royal court, how they managed the coercive nature of, of being assimilated into that royal court, how they resisted, and how God honored their resolve to be faithful and to have allegiance to him. And then we saw that all of the rest of the stories of Daniel flowed from that resolve, including the end of chapter one, where Daniel and his friends were found to be 10 times better than the other wise advisors to the king and set them up to be able to navigate through the dangers and difficulties of the royal court, help them overcome the jealousies. And we'll look at that again today. We looked at chapter three, where Nebuchadnezzar decided to set up a an image, an idol, a statue, and asked everybody, well, didn't ask, he ordered everyone to bow down and to worship that statue. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego said, we'll take the fire, king, no thanks to the statue, we'll take the fire. And God was with them in the fire. And, and that's a remarkable story. And we unpacked that and talked about how they demonstrated some important things to the king. And now here, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 6, probably the most familiar story to everybody. Whenever we see or think about Daniel, we tend to think about Daniel in the lion's den, and that's, that's good. I was told, and I don't remember from my childhood, but I was told that Daniel in the lion's den was my favorite story as a kid, my favorite Bible story. Uh, it seems a little odd that that would have been my favorite Bible story. I don't, I don't really know why, but that's what I was told. And uh, I still like it. I hope you will enjoy it as we look at it today through a little bit more grown-up eyes than we had as children. But nonetheless, to answer the question, was God able to rescue Daniel from the lions? So let's take a look. 
let's start with Daniel chapter six, verse one. And I want to read through the story and, and talk about it as we go along to highlight some of the things that stand out to us that will help us navigate our lives and, and also understand Daniel's example to us. You know, we all like to think about the rescue, but what about, what about the qualities of his life that led to that rescue? Like chapter one that I think of so often, Daniel resolved that he wouldn't defile himself. We need to have just as, just as firm a resolve today on the things that matter and about how we conduct our lives before God. We have to have just as much conviction that we're going to do what God says, no matter what. So here we go. Daniel chapter six, verse one, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, let's, that's the middle of a paragraph in this English translation. This, I'm reading from the New International Version. But let's make sure we understand what's going on here. Darius is the king that just arrived on the scene at the end of chapter five. Chapter five is the story of the handwriting on the wall. Fascinating story. Take a look at it sometime. Belshazzar was judged by God and found wanting. Belshazzar, you may remember, took the goblets and the other royal uh, or temple items, I should say, into the royal court to the temple in Babylon. And then he called for them to be brought into the palace where he had a great uh, banquet, you might say, probably more along the lines of a drinking festival. And they profaned those items. And God wrote a message on the wall calling him to account and told him that night that he would, um, he would lose the kingdom. And sure enough, he did. That very night, he was slain and Darius the Mede. So, so we see that's why Darius is mentioned in chapter six. Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. And so he set up his group of guys to supervise things on his behalf. And, and he just pointed out three of them to supervise the other 120. Well, Daniel was one of those three and, and it's because he was good, but you can imagine that, all right, all of a sudden here's Daniel, a Jewish guy. And can you spell jealousy? Well, I don't think it's too hard to imagine. And so we pick up the story, understanding what's going on that, um, yeah, he had rivals, he had people jealous. So we continue verse four at this, after Daniel was set up and the three guys were appointed at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Wow, wouldn't we love to have government officials like that these days? Oops, I should guess I shouldn't talk about that, but I am going to talk about that because we do need people who have important responsibilities to be like Daniel so that they're trustworthy and they are not corrupt or negligent. That's what we need. We need that kind of people. Daniel was that guy. And they tried to find fault with him, but they couldn't until verse five. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. 
Now that's really significant unless it has something to do with the law of his God. You see, they figured it out and it doesn't say it exactly this specifically, but we know it from the story of Daniel and it's definitely here. They figured out that Daniel's first loyalty was to God. And if they could find a way, if they could find a way to set Daniel up for a challenge to that loyalty, they believed he would be loyal to God and that would give them a basis for accusing him. Now, it's interesting today, we need to think about what that might mean in our lives. Are there ever going to become times when our loyalty to God is tested and challenged, and we have to have to purpose in our hearts that our loyalty will be to God first, no one else? Now, any good pastor would say at this point, and that includes children and grandchildren, See, our children and our grandchildren can't come before God in our lives. No other person can come before God in our lives. Now, that's not to say we have to diminish the people around us. That's not it at all. The Bible doesn't call for that. But the Bible does say that God comes first. And these guys figured it out that if they were going to get Daniel, they had to find a way to make Daniel choose between something else and his God. And so they began to, to plot against Daniel. Now, Daniel had something going for him that, that we have going for us. Well, we don't know exactly what Daniel had going for him, but I want to make a connection between something that is said about Daniel here and something that we know from the New Testament that God has given us. So Daniel so distinguished himself, verse 3, among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Exceptional qualities. I read another English translation that talked about the, the spirit Daniel had. Well, I was thinking about that. I wonder what spirit that was. What was it about Daniel that, that the king saw in him? that set him apart. And, and we don't really know. We, we, we understand some of that from chapter one, of course, and his abilities and how God blessed him, gave him special abilities to understand visions and dreams, those sorts of things. But I was thinking, now, how does that apply to us in our world? And I remembered a very familiar verse to many followers of Jesus from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, that's the New International Version way it says it. Some of you are more familiar with the way the King James says it. And the King James says this, or, or I should say the New King James, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's pretty good stuff, don't you think? Imagine that. We who are followers of Jesus, God has given us that kind of spirit so that we can follow him. We are truly blessed that God has given us that kind of spirit, and we don't have to be afraid. Uh, I heard someone say recently that whenever we make a decision out of fear, it's almost always the wrong decision. I thought, hmm, that's sounds about right to me. I can't prove that. And I don't know that anybody can prove that. 
But think about your own life. When you act out of fear, doesn't it always, doesn't always prod you in the wrong direction? And so Daniel had some kind of spirit, and we'll get a hint of that by his behavior, but there was something special about Daniel, and there's something special about you if you're a follower of Jesus, because God gives us a different kind of spirit, because the Spirit of God lives in us, and we need to take that seriously, not out of pride, not out of boastfulness. I'm not suggesting that. I hope you understand that. I'm suggesting that's just what God has given us so that we can be faithful to Him, and we need to count on that, and we need to act like that. We need to be strong and very courageous, as Joshua says. So let's continue the story because it gets more interesting and the plot indeed, indeed thickens. Verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, now these are the ones that were plotting against Daniel, and here's what they came up with. So they said to, to the king, verse 6, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius put the decree in writing. So you see what they've done. They've set up a system that for the next 30 days, no prayer can be made, no petition can be offered except to the king. And if you violate the law, you're thrown in the lion's den. It's a pretty straightforward approach, and it was intended, without a doubt, to go after Daniel. We would say in our times. We'd say that was a political hit job. They set him up and positioned him in a way he could not succeed, or, or so they thought. What's Daniel going to do? Well, he's going to have a real challenge because he's got 30 days that he can't petition God or man except the king, or he goes to the lion's den, and, and it's described here as irrevocable. Well, a couple of things here we should think about. Now, one is that it's unusual for Persian kings because of the, their religious people that study this tell us that because of the way the Persians approached their religious beliefs, they didn't typically think the king was a deity. So that's a little odd that they would put the king in that position, but it also appealed to the king's ego. I think that's pretty obvious. And it set up a loyalty test. And if you're the king, if you're ruling over things, you want to make sure people are loyal and they're going to do what you expect them to do. So it's clearly a loyalty test. It's also described as, as being irrevocable. Well, the people, again, that study this can't find any evidence of why it was described as irrevocable, because it, it doesn't seem that those laws couldn't be changed. But what it does set up, and perhaps this is why Daniel describes it as irrevocable, is because what they are now using are the king's words against the king and against Daniel. And so, Daniel is bound by, or so they think, by the king's command, and the king is bound because he established it by his word, and can the king really break his word? It puts the king in a terrible spot. What king wants to say, oops, sorry guys, made a mistake, I'm going to change that, 
after they had flattered him and after they had convinced him to write the law. So that's a little insight into what we think is going on there. And nonetheless, no matter no matter the details of that, which are interesting and helpful, it's clear that that the intent was a political hit job on Daniel to take him out uh, and not just remove him from office, but to actually have him killed by the lions. And the king was trapped by his own words, and they had set things up to accomplish their purpose, get rid of Daniel. So verse 10, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So Daniel hears about it. He knows what's going on. He, he's clearly purposefully making this decision, and he goes to his house. It's, it's real interesting how he doesn't hide what he's doing. He conducts himself like he always has in his upstairs room, opens the windows toward Jerusalem. Now, that strikes us as a little unusual, praying toward a city, but there's precedent in the scriptures for that, and so God's people did practice that. Remember, Jerusalem was the place where the temple was, and so where the temple was was the actual physical, well, as much as it could be physical, but the, the actual presence of God, we should say, in the Holy of Holies. And so they prayed often toward Jerusalem. And it says Daniel prayed three times a day. Now, we don't know exactly what that's about. There are some references in the scriptures about praying three times a day. We do know clearly in the Old Testament, there is the practice of two times a day prayer. But nonetheless, no matter the details of why Daniel chose three times, he did pray three times, and he didn't hide. He opened the windows, people could see in. There's some question about whether they could see in the windows, or maybe they heard him praying out loud, because windows in those days would have been high up to allow the breeze to go through and to, and to allow for privacy. So it wouldn't be like a picture window necessarily that we think about. Sometimes the, the artist's conceptions are of a picture window. Could have been that, we don't know, but that wouldn't have been typical of the times. But it was certain that Daniel went and prayed. It's clear that he went and prayed. Now, what, what did Daniel pray? Well, I did a little looking into that because I thought that ought to be real helpful. If we could know what Daniel was praying, that would give us some insights for our lives and it would help us. And so I looked quite a number of places and the best I could do was, well, we don't know exactly what Daniel was praying, but we do know something about the practice of prayer in those days, and perhaps we can, can put some ideas together of what Daniel might have been praying and how he might have been approached that. Now, it does say in here that, that Daniel was asking God for help. So, and it does say that he was giving thanks. So uh, I guess we get an idea that um, he was praying in his usual manner, and, and he was doing what you and I would do. You know, if I was in that situation, uh, maybe, maybe you're a little bit holier than I am, and I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be saying, help. 
I'd be telling God, I'm in a real jam here. I just want you to know. And I'd be asking, you know, can you get me out of this? Because that's what we would think. Now, I don't know if Daniel said that or not. I don't, don't know that. He may have. He may have said to God, you know, I'm in real trouble here. I, I really, I need your help. I could use your help. I, I have to have your help. Um, but I suspect that Daniel also said to God, you know, I, I remember the story of the three guys, and they said that they weren't going to bow to the king's statue. Uh, they'd take the fire first. And, and Daniel probably said to God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue my practice of prayer because you've been so good to me, and, and I've determined to be faithful to you. I determined long ago not to defile myself. And I'm going to keep praying because you have been faithful and I am, am not going to cave now just because it's a little tough for me. Daniel may have said to God, you can count on me. If it means the lions, it means the lions, but you can know that I'm going to be faithful. Now, I don't know if he said that. I, I suspect that he may have because that's the way he behaved. But when we examine the practice of prayer in those days and, and, and try to understand it. We do know they prayed twice. We do have some idea of what they would have prayed. And we do know from the time of Jesus that faithful Jewish men prayed at least twice a day. And we do have an idea what they prayed. Morning and evening, a faithful Jewish man, faithful to God, would have prayed the Shema. Now, the Shema comes from the Old Testament. It was a prayer that they taught each other to pray, and so they did. It, it is quite simple, I'm, and I'm reading the, the text of it from Mark chapter 12. We'll talk about why I chose that in just a minute, but it does come from the Old Testament. But the Shema says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, that may sound familiar to you, and it probably does, and we'll talk about the rest of that, but that's the Shema. Now, notice what it says. Love God with all your heart. Put God first, heart, soul, mind, strength. And we know that faithful men in Jesus' time prayed that morning and evening. We don't know with certainty that Daniel prayed that, but there's a pretty good likelihood because it came from a long tradition of praying. Now, that would have been morning and evening. And what about the third time? Because he seemed to pray morning, noon, and evening, or when he got up in the morning, just before he went to bed at night, and sometime in the middle of the day, we might say lunchtime, they might have said about three in the afternoon, what we call three in the afternoon. What would he have prayed then? Well, again, I can't say definitively. But from what we know, it's entirely likely that they would have had some psalms that they would have memorized and been able to pray. We don't know if Daniel had a text of the scriptures of any kind that might have been available in those days. But as a young man in the royal court in Jerusalem, before Babylon came to town and God gave Jerusalem to Babylon, he would have learned those prayers because that was part of the what we would call spiritual formation of those days. So Daniel likely prayed the Shema morning and evening and midday, likely from the Psalms. Now, 
this isn't particularly focused on the idea of praying because there's a larger question in Daniel, is he going to survive? But I want to ask you a question, uh, and I'm looking out there at all of you, so to speak. Uh, how many of you struggle with praying? How many of you struggle with knowing whether the right way to pray or, or do I pray enough or oh, does God really expect me to pray about every little thing like what color socks should I put on in the morning? Uh, we have all kinds of th things that we might think about is how do we approach praying? Now, for sure, we don't want to take God for granted, but isn't there a level of confidence we can have that we don't have to ask God, should I turn right at the stop sign or should I turn left? And, and most of us don't think that way. And I'm exaggerating a little bit just to make us think on the edges of that a little bit. But a lot of people, a lot of Christians, it seems to me, struggle with this idea of praying. And I suspect that a lot of us feel inadequate in our prayers. Now, one of the reasons that I suspect that is because every time you hear somebody talk about prayer, they talk to us and say, you don't pray enough. But I never hear them say what enough is. You know, how much praying is enough? Is it a question of how many minutes a day I pray? Is it a question of a certain number of prayers that I have to go through? What is enough praying? So there's that kind of nagging thing that gets in people's minds. The other thing that gets in people's minds is, well, do I see God doing what I ask him for? And of course, related to that is praying really about asking God for things, or is it about trusting God that he'll take care of things because we know he loves us? So there's a lot of questions related to prayer, and I just want to give you a little bit of hope and help that maybe you don't have to put yourself under such pressure about praying. Maybe God has given us some simple little things that if we will sincerely use those in our prayers, that that would be pleasing to God, and that would form us in the same way Daniel's prayer seemed to form him into someone with this remarkable spirit. So what I'm going to suggest is that you look up Mark chapter 12 and read verses 29 through 31, and there you will see the summary of what is called the great commandment, where people ask Jesus what summed up the law, and you'll see the Shema plus another added verse that Jesus added. I'm going to suggest that you pray that morning and evening. In the same way God's people prayed the Shema over time, you can pray this prayer. Now, I got this idea. It's not original with me. I, I just really liked it a lot from a man named Scott McKnight. He wrote a book called The Jesus Creed, and he calls this prayer the Jesus Creed. And he makes the case that we as Christians can adopt what God's people have always adopted, and what Jesus put together, these two ideas, both of them came from the Old Testament, that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, which was the second part of that that we'll get to. He put those together, and he called those the Jesus Creed. And I think that they could, Scott McKnight makes an excellent point that helps liberate us from that. So, so why wouldn't you consider praying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
And in that simple prayer, it keeps us on track because it reminds us that God comes first and we love him with everything we've got. And we love our neighbors as ourselves. What a great way to begin and end the day. So consider that. If you have a practice of prayer that you're content with, I'm not suggesting you have to change that. But if you struggled, there's an idea. Now, if you want to add in the third prayer of the day, or maybe you want to do it a little bit differently, that's okay. But what about considering praying the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis? You see, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them about praying, he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And you know, sometimes we just need to get back to basics. And these two ideas are basics. We pray what Jesus summarized in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, and we pray the Lord's Prayer. And if we pray that, have, haven't we really encapsulated so much of what God would have us to be thinking about and aware about and concerned for and all of those kinds of things? I think it makes a lot of sense, and I want to encourage you to consider that. If you struggled with prayer, and a lot of men struggle with prayer more than women. Men, if you're listening, pray what Jesus prayed. There's nothing inadequate about that. Anybody wants to make you take their guilt trip about prayer, just tell them you pray the way Jesus prayed. And um, that, that'll, that'll mess with their mind a little bit, don't you think? But the point isn't messing with their mind. The point is messing with our hearts and getting them in the right place. And Daniel knew how to pray. And the Bible has taught us how to pray. Jesus himself taught us how to pray. And I just think that's a remarkable approach that ought to help a lot of us. We don't need to spend all, all of our time asking God, begging God. We need to spend our time in the Lord's Prayer and with this, what Scott McKnight called the Jesus Creed. Well, we've gotten part way through Daniel chapter six, and I hope this idea of prayer will help. I hope you begin to get the idea that Daniel was a special guy and that this practice of praying helped form him into that special person. And we're going to carry on the next part of Daniel because they caught him and they had him red-handed. They had this political hit job and they're about to get him sent to the lion's den. We'll talk about that when we get back after this. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now, 
that today America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Picking up the story of Daniel in Daniel chapter six, and he's in a world of hurt. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm welcoming you into the story of Daniel, into our conversation where we challenge each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because that is what faith is. I'm the pastor of a local church, and if you're not familiar with who I am, what I do, I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida a real church with real people. We wrestle with all of the things that you wrestle with. And I want to give a particular thanks to our church for being willing to let me do these podcasts and these radio programs and, and mentioning podcasts, by the way, if, if you want to hear this again, it goes to podcast, wherever you get your podcast shows, you can, you can hear this again. So uh, if you like it, tell a friend, maybe they'd find some benefit from it. I'd be glad for you to do that. And, and we're looking at Daniel. He's helping us understand how to navigate life and particularly our lives today. And I have found the book of Daniel enormously helpful over time. I think about it often, remind myself of its principles, and, and we're touching on a few of them in these weeks. And we're finishing up our look at Daniel this week with Daniel chapter six. And, and Daniel chapter six is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And Daniel's political enemies have el elaborately concocted a plot to trap Daniel. It's a political hit job and more because they want to have Daniel killed because they, they're jealous. They want to get rid of him. And so they've caught Daniel praying when the king specifically said they weren't supposed to do that. We're going to pick up the story in Daniel chapter 6, verse 13. I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. Then they, and, and these are Daniel's accusers, his enemies, then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed, and he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Now, hold on just a minute before we go any farther. Notice their accusation wasn't just related to the king's decree. It was he prays three times a day, which is right. He does. But, but what's it say here? He doesn't pay any attention to you. Verse 13. He pays no attention to you, your majesty. Well, that was patently untrue, and the king would have known that. So they're, they're overplaying their hand and overplaying the law. But nonetheless, the king is greatly distressed, and it said he made every effort until sundown to save Daniel. That's remarkable. The king tried everything he could think of to rescue Daniel, but he could not get around the law he had established and the penalty that applied to breaking that law. Verse 15, then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So see, there they are using the king's words against him. Verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, 
may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Now, a couple of things here. Even the king recognized that Daniel served God continually. Daniel was faithful to God, and that was how they trapped Daniel, because of his faithfulness to God. But the king also, having exhausted everything that he could come up with and being unable to rescue Daniel, is now set up to say, may your God rescue you. So once again, God's people, God's person, God's man, Daniel, is in a position where only God can come to the rescue. In the same way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's story was set up so that God became the obvious liberator, the one who rescued them from the fire. Now Daniel is in the same position. So Daniel is in the lion's den. Verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. So the king sealed the, the entrance to the lion's den with his ring and with the rings of other people so that if anybody tampered with it, it would be obvious. And, and that, of course, helps us understand that if Daniel survives, then it wasn't because of outside intervention. It was somebody else's intervention beyond the king and beyond the people at that time. King couldn't sleep. He didn't eat, spent a miserable night, no entertainment, could hardly wait, it seems, until the first light of dawn, verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually. There it is. Don't, don't you love that? Whom you serve continually. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? See, the king didn't know if his God was able. Well, we have a little idea about what that God can handle, don't we? Daniel answered, verse 21, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. So now this ordeal of lions is an interesting event, and this, we don't think about things in this way, and, and it's kind of a good thing. I think you would agree. But often in ancient times, they would put people through ordeals, and if they're God or if somehow they survived the ordeal, then that proved their innocence. So that if you were thrown into a lion's den and you survived, then you were innocent. But if the lions killed you, you, well, okay, you got what you should, should have gotten. You got what was coming to them, to you. You deserved that. The lions took care of business. Well, Daniel clearly proclaims that he was innocent. I was found innocent in God's sight, he says. I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you. So Daniel is saying, I was innocent before God and before you. I was not guilty of this terrible thing that they said that I don't pay any attention to you. Remember, they said that as part of their accusation. Sure, he knew he had prayed. The king knew he had prayed. That wasn't in dispute. But they didn't just accuse him of that. They accused him of not having loyalty to the king and of not paying attention to the king. And Daniel clearly proclaims that he was innocent. And so God has rescued him. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. 
because he had trusted in his God. Daniel had faith. Daniel had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Daniel trusted in his God. Isn't that remarkable? It's an example for all of us. When push comes to shove, will we trust in God? And the answer is, yes, we will. Do I hear that? I see that. You're all agreeing. Wonderful. Verse 24, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Now, that's really a, a sad part of the story. It's what they did in those days. And, and I don't think any of us rejoice at the, uh, the men being thrown into the lion's den. Of course, we certainly don't rejoice that their wives and children were. That's the way tyrants did in those days. That's the way kings did. They enforced their power. And, and not only would you suffer, but your family would suffer. So you better keep yourselves in line and don't cross me or else. So that's what happened. But there's also another interesting thing that this port, uh, part of the story and this reporting of the story tells us. It reminds us that what Daniel said was true. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. See, if we didn't know this, that the lions had attacked these men that were thrown in, if we didn't know that that, was, that, that happened, then someone might say, well, those lions had just been well-fed and they didn't care about Daniel. They just ignored him because they were taking a nap over in the corner. Well, clearly the lions were not well-fed and clearly the lions were not taking a nap in the corner. Clearly they were looking for food and found it when those men were thrown in. So that little detail really helps us understand that something remarkable happened when Daniel was thrown in, something truly remarkable happened. The story concludes with King Darius now making a statement, and this happens more than once in Daniel, and this is just Darius's response to, to what he sees God has done. Remember, the king asked the question, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? He found out, yes, he was able, and he did. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So Daniel did all right after that. He continued to prosper in the royal court, even in this pagan royal court. And Darius makes a very strong statement supporting the God of Daniel. And of course, that would have had consequences for the other Jewish people that had been taken captive and taken into exile because now they had protection in their faithfulness to God. And so Daniel's faithfulness was an example to us of faithfulness, and it resulted in protection for other people who wanted to be faithful to God. And that's really a remarkable consequence of that story. You know, sometimes we don't realize that, that what 
we do has consequences for other people. And we need to, to take that seriously. We need to take that and to recognize that, hmm, this is a this is a big deal. This is important stuff. So let's summarize the the story of Daniel so that we can understand it a little bit in these three chapters that we've looked at, just to remind ourselves of what what we have talked about and the ground we've covered so that we can we can apply it to our lives and benefit from from what God has to say to us. So in chapter one, I've said it more than once, and some people think, well, can't you get on to anything else? But it's so important that Daniel resolved, Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself. And there's no question that Daniel had allegiance to God. His loyalty was first and foremost to God. He wasn't against serving in the royal court. He did not resist learning what they wanted him to learn. And he clearly learned that material because he did so well. But but his success in the royal court, his continued um, ability to thrive in the royal court, his ability to navigate all these rivals clearly started because he was loyal to God. And all of the good things that happened in Daniel began in chapter one, because Daniel made up his mind that his first allegiance was to God. So I ask you, have you made up your mind as your first allegiance to God? There will be challenges all of the time. There will be good things that come along all of the time, and people will want you to do this, that, or the other thing all of the time to challenge your faithfulness to God. The question isn't, will we have challenges? The question is, will we be loyal? And that's what Daniel is showing us here in Daniel chapter one. He was going to be loyal to God no matter what. So chapter one reminds us of that. Chapter three, takes us to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not bow down to the king's idol. And, and they clearly said to the king when challenged that, you know, king, you can throw us in the fire, but our God is able to rescue us. Well, yeah, he's able, but king, even if he doesn't do it, we're not going to bow down to your idol because some things matter more than life itself. And some things are worth dying for, and we won't bow down to your idol. You know, there are coercive forces on the people of God all the time, and we have to decide when will we bow and when won't we? What is too much? When do we take a stand? And they took a stand because they realized that easy lives were not what mattered. What mattered was faithfulness to God. And of course, God rescued them from that. Of course, we also know God doesn't always rescue the, his people that stand faithfully for him. Well, except that he does because you know, death is no problem for God because he's the God of resurrection. So even if our faithfulness results in our death, we don't really die because to be with the Lord is that much better, the scriptures remind us. So we need to think about some of these kind of things. What do you live for that's more important than life itself? What silences you? What causes you to step back? What causes you to take a stand forward and to realize that you don't have a spirit of fear, but you can, you can confidently trust God and step forward? That's part of the message of chapter three. And then, of course, chapter six, the, again, the idea of faithfulness to God is, is clearly present. But notice that what's added, Daniel at the end proclaims his innocence, both before God and before the king. And it reminds me that 
that you and I, we need to live blameless lives. Uh, people occasionally say, well, what do you expect me to be perfect? I didn't say perfect. I said blameless. We need to live lives that are true to God. And when God tells us to do something, we do it. And when God tells us don't do something, we stop doing it. It's really that simple. And God is not setting us up to, to, um, to challenge us or to condemn us. He's very clear to us about what he expects of us, both because the scriptures are clear about how we're to conduct ourselves. We know we don't lie and steal and those kinds of th obvious things and other obvious things. We are clearly told how to live. We're clearly given the principles how to live, like love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. The idea that God comes first over everybody else and everything else is clear in the scriptures. What's challenging for us is when we want to try to talk God out of it. But we need to live blameless lives like Daniel. That's the point of chapter six, I think, for our times. Will we live blameless lives? Perfect. I'm, I'm pretty sure you'll make mistakes. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about conscious decisions to defy God or to not do what God says to do. That's what's important. Now, Daniel lived in a very coercive environment where, where he didn't have a lot of choices of things. So is his challenges were greater than ours. We have been very fortunate that we haven't been coerced by our government to do things that violated our conscience sometimes, but not frequently. Thankfully, our nation and its laws was established on the principles of the Bible. And so most of the laws that we have are consistent with what the scripture teaches, or if not consistent with, not in direct conflict with. And so we've been very fortunate, but occasionally things come along that people say, wait a minute, I can't do that. And, and they say that violates their conscience. And that's what I want to talk about from the book of Daniel, because Daniel clearly said, I've got to keep praying because to stop praying would violate my conscience. Now, we don't know any place in the scriptures of Daniel's day that that it clearly said, uh, if you don't pray, that, that you have violated what God expects, and that becomes a sin to you. But it was clearly something that Daniel's conscience spoke to him about, and clearly something that he was convicted that he needed to do. And so we need to take the principle of conscience and apply it in our day. And it's been very concerning to me when I've heard about these vaccine mandates, and then I've heard that there are people, and I've talked to a few people, that have a religious objection to taking the, the vaccine. And, and we need to talk about how do we navigate that a little bit and, and think about that. And I'm not going to tell you it's easy. I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's an issue of conscience. In the same way, the Bible reminds us that one person will choose one thing and one church person will choose another. And the, the best example that I'm aware of is from the meat offered to idols in the New Testament, where some people felt perfectly free to eat that and others felt like they could not, that that would violate their conscience. The Bible doesn't take a position on that and say, here's what you must do. It clearly teaches that's an issue of conscience. So when it comes to this vaccine, some people will have an issue of conscience and they just can't do it. And other people, it's not, a, not an issue for them at all. What concerns me is that, that when we have a government that says you must do that, then it puts people on the spot. You will do this or you will lose your job. You will do this or we will crush you is essentially what's going on. And I know some people will say, well, we have um, 
we have freedom of religion. And so there is a conscience exception to these. Well, sometimes there is, and sometimes we see people are not accepting that, and they're putting all kinds of of hoops you have to jump through to have a conscience objection. Well, I was listening to an attorney on a pod, another podcast recently, and, and he's a, an attorney in, in Washington, D.C., William Olson, and he works with these kinds of things and helps people with these kinds of issues. And one of the things, and, and I hope I can represent him well, so uh, if anything I say sounds a little funny legally, either it's new to us or maybe I haven't represented him correctly, but nonetheless, he said that today, this idea of a conscience objection is viewed as a special benefit for religious people. He said the free exercise of religion, which goes back to the First Amendment to the Constitution, the free exercise clause was always understood by the early founders of our country as a barrier against the power of government to be able to intrude into your life or mine with respect to duties that we owe to God. Now, he didn't say this, but I'm saying this, that at the heart of religious liberty is this idea of conscience. And if we cannot exercise our conscience, then how do we have freedom of religion? And so this attorney is essentially saying the same thing in a different sense. But what he's pointing out is that subtly and over the last several years, I think he said 70 years, we've seen the idea of this conscience exception or this free exercise clause changed and made into a special benefit. And he says, we've got to realize that it's not a special benefit. It was meant to be a barrier that kept government out of certain areas of our lives. He referred to the, the story of when Jesus said, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God, the things that are, that are God's. In other words, we have two duties. We have duties we owe to the government that are understandable and necessary and that the government can expect us to, to cooperate with. And, you know, things like the speed limit, those are reasonable cooperations. But he says there are also duties that we owe to God, and the government has no jurisdiction over that. It's only God that can call us to account for those duties we have to God. And so the government needs to stay away from those. Those are conscience objections. Uh, and, and they don't have any, any authority to interfere with what God has, has called us to do or not to do. He refers to Jefferson, who reminded all of us that God as creator had the right to compel us to do anything he wanted to compel us to do. He could compel our obedience. He could compel us to be faithful to him. He could force us to do anything. He's the creator. But the creator who could force us to do anything instead decided to give us free will. So we now have that conscience opportunity, that freedom of conscience, that first freedom, that religious freedom. If we don't have freedom of conscience, we don't have religious freedom. If we don't have religious freedom, we don't have freedom, period. All freedom rises and falls on that conscience issue and whether or not we have freedom of conscience. And so this attorney goes on to say that these vaccine mandates, they violate that principle that some things are the area of Caesar or government, and some things are the area of God and God alone. And, and he reminds us that, that that's just the way it is, and, and we need to consider that, and, and we need to realize that we can have a conscience objection, but there might be a cost to that. That's not anything new in the life of Christians. It wasn't new in the life of 
Daniel. He knew there was going to be a consequence, but he did it. It's interesting. And the people he works with, he said that overwhelmingly, the people that have a conscience objection that are resisting this are conservative Catholics, evangelical Christians, and some Orthodox people. So these people know that God is good and government lies, and their concern and their conscience won't permit them to take the vaccine. So it's, I thought it was very interesting and very helpful that, that he reminded us. He, he said some other things, and we don't have time to do all of them, but he said, don't count on the courts because the courts often duck issues all the time, and the courts can't be dependent upon their often judges are weak and compromised people, so they're not going to do the right thing. But he reminds us that we need to trust in God. We need to have this confidence that, that 2 Timothy talks about. We don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit that comes from God that overcomes these kinds of things. And like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we fight and do what's right, and we leave the outcome to God. We may not have the easy life we've always had. It may be hard. I wish I had better news for that. It might result in consequences you and I would prefer to avoid, but we have to count the cost of faithfulness and consider the example of Daniel. And who knows, but what your faithfulness and mine will result in other people having the liberty to be faithful sometime down the road. Well, I sure appreciate you listening and thinking these thoughts with me and going through the life of Daniel. Next week, we begin the season of Advent. We're going to talk about getting ready for the coming of the Lord. And I hope you'll come back and join us for that. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. God bless you real good. <music>